Thanks for joining us on the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Geary. Ever since the fall in the garden, this world has been scarred by tragedy. Bad news, the unexpected, things that you hear have happened and you're shocked, surprised, saddened, even angry. You can't believe that really happened and you wonder if you heard it right. And a tragedy always makes you wonder if something could have been done differently to change the result, to avoid the outcome. How tragic it was some 20 plus years ago in the U.S. to see hijacked planes crashing into high-rises and the chaos, confusion, and loss of those skyscrapers crumbling to, crumbling to the ground. We've all known personal tragedy too. The untimely or unexpected death of a loved one, a freak accident that leaves everyone shocked, confused, or even numb. Or the news reporting some natural disaster in some faraway land, an earthquake or a flood, or something else that results in a jaw-dropping death toll. People like you and I living their lives one moment, with their lives, their families, and communities rocked to the core the next. Tragedy leaves us feeling vulnerable and unprotected. Tragedy shakes us up and it wakes us up thinking it could happen to anyone. Tragedy causes us to wonder and to analyze, and tragedy, unfortunately, sometimes leads us to ask the wrong questions. If God is so loving, how could bad things happen to good people? Or where was God in all of that? Or if if there was a God, how come he couldn't stop it? Or why didn't he stop it? I was just speaking to someone who recently lost a young family member, a relative in their prime, full of life and life ahead of them. This young, vibrant person living their best life one day, full of promise and goals and vision, then gone the next. No accident, no crime, no disease involved, just an unexpected death, with a coroner's report months down the line to hopefully answer any questions. It was a tragic loss of a loved one. And this person shared with me how in that initial moment of hearing the tragic news, their mind and heart immediately went to anger, accusing God of being the bad guy in the situation, which we often do in such situations, because God is after all sovereign, right? But with a little bit of time, this person has realized the need to repent because God has been carrying them through the tragedy and they need him in the tragedy now more than ever. In this fallen world, things do not always go smoothly. Things are not always safe. We are not always protected. But God is still God, even in the midst of tragedy, in charge, on the throne, good, loving, and gracious, though we may not always see or understand on this side of heaven. The verses we'll look at on this episode of the podcast are pretty tragic. They're not completely surprising, as we see the loss of a great man of God, one used mightily in preparing the way for the gospel to come into this dark and desperate world, and whose end is shocking and somewhat disappointing. On this podcast, we look in Mark chapter 6 at the death of John the Baptist. Tragic? True. Surprising? Not necessarily. Let's get started, beginning in verse 14. Things have been going well in the ministry of Jesus. The truth proclaimed, the multitudes hearing, people healed, God glorified. Not everyone is on board, though. We last time saw that Jesus went home and the reception was lukewarm at best, as they used their eyes and minds to process the situation instead of faith. And so Jesus could not do many miracles there, their lack of faith and expectation dimming the lights on any great ministry opportunities. But Jesus' disciples were on standby, waiting in the wings, and he sends them out to spread the message, giving them power and authority to do so many of the same things, healing the sick, casting out the demons, all to bring clout to the message that they brought, that people should repent. 
It was a bold message in a world that doesn't like to hear that we've done something wrong, that we're not right, and that there is a standard and authority and we've stepped over the line. To repent means to turn, to turn from where we were headed and go the other way, to turn from sin and to the Savior, and that we can't keep going the same way because we're in the wrong. The world takes this as a threatening message to be told that they need to repent. They reject it with cries that they're being judged, hypocrites, bigots, narrow-minded, extremists, rather than embracing it as a merciful move of God and that there is a second chance. Even as believers, we can hesitate to repent, self-justifying our actions or our motives, defending ourselves rather than just saying, Lord, you're right, I need to repent. As we move into the middle of Mark chapter 6, we have a parenthetical reference, a side story, a side scene, where we cut away from the main action of Jesus and the disciples and get some other information that seems a bit random at first. It's kind of like when you're watching television and there's a sudden news break where they interrupt the program for those who still watch live TV, telling you something important that's happened kind of on the side, and then they'll get back to your regularly scheduled program in progress. That's kind of what happens here in Mark chapter 6. We break away from the action to see something else that's important to know at this point. It's sort of though, how does this fit into what we've been reading moment? But we see the tragic death of John the Baptist. And two reasons this information comes at the right time in the gospel, and it's not just a side story plopped into all that we've been learning about Jesus. First, it's a turning point in Jesus's ministry. Remember last time we saw that Jesus sent out the disciples. He was multiplying his ministry. They had waited in the wings, and now he is giving them more opportunities in the ministry because his time is limited. The rejection is growing, the opposition is mourning, and the timer is being set for his final countdown, the cross in Jerusalem. And with this turning point, Mark tells us about the death of John the Baptist, who had been around since the start. We looked at John back in chapter 1, preparing the way for Jesus. His very own conception and birth, like we read in the Gospel or in the, yeah, the Gospel of Luke, six months ahead of Jesus, divinely appointed to make way for Jesus, preparing the hearts of the nation, making inroads for the Gospel to come. And with his passing, this is truly a changing of the guard, a change of season. That phase is done. John is out of the picture. The disciples are now beginning to take up the mantle, something they would be tasked with doing after Jesus' ascension, endowed with power from on high when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. It's hard to imagine the ministry of Jesus without John the Baptist. Around the time of this recording, Queen Elizabeth II recently passed, reigning as queen for 70 years and 214 days, the second longest reigning monarch in all of recorded history. It's hard to imagine the world without her for many. She's been around for all of it, a pillar, a constant, and now she's out of the picture. It's similar with John the Baptist. He was always been around. And with this recording of his death at this point in the Gospel of Mark, it's a clear marker that all the preparation for Jesus' ministry is complete and things are moving into phase two, heading toward the cross the final countdown, the full and complete reason that he came to this earth, not just to be a good teacher, a miracle worker, but to be the savior that we all need, the perfect sinless sacrifice in a God-rejecting world, fulfilling what Paul would eventually write in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A second reason this information about the death of John the Baptist comes at the right time in this gospel, because we see the rejection of Christ. While most people love the miracles, the message is calling them to account. In this chapter that we're looking at, the disciples are out preaching that people should repent, to turn from sin and turn to the gospel. 
But this is a world that loves its sin. And to repent, one must agree that the wages of sin is death, and that sin separates us from God, and that sin is choosing what I want over what God says is best for me. And rather than receiving this soberly and repenting toward God, John 3.19 says it well, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. How tragic. God extends his mercy and mankind rejects it, loving their sin instead. This story of John the Baptist's death shows us that in action, God sending a messenger of repentance into a man's life, Herod, and that man choosing sin over the opportunity to repent and the tragic end that results. So let's take a look at Mark 6, verses 14 through 16. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I had beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Someone has a guilty conscience. We'll get to the details of John's death in a bit, but up front, King Herod gets news of all that is taking place out there. The multitudes, the miracles, the teachings, the confrontations with the religious leaders, and Herod gets paranoid. He thinks John the Baptist has come back to haunt him in some way. He beheaded John to get rid of him, but the voice could not be silenced. Herod is still being convicted. Silencing John has not silenced his guilt. Now, Herod's theology is pretty off here. He thinks John might be back manifesting himself as Jesus or working through a man named Jesus, which I find interesting because John did not do the miracles that Jesus did. But the message was the same. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Herod equated that message with John. John had made it clear his message was not muddy. Man needs to repent of his sin. So when Herod hears about Jesus preaching the same thing but with miracles too, He's wondering if this is John coming back for more. John 2.0. You can imagine Herod looking over his shoulder, the paranoia. When will he come for me? But John is wrong, as are the others too. Some thought Jesus was Elijah, others the prophet with a capital P. God spoke through the Old Testament prophet Malachi, and he wrote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So they were looking for Elijah to come before their anticipated Messiah. And Elijah's ministry was marked with a clear message of righteousness. He called out Israel's King Ahab and the queen Jezebel, who had brought idols into the land. Baal worship. They had 800 priests of Baal and Asherah, a goddess. And Elijah spoke up, confronted them. Maybe this rang true for Herod too, a prophet of God calling out a wicked king and his wife, as Herod and his wife Herodias were being called out on their sin too, which we'll see in a moment. But in wondering if Jesus is Elijah, now come to prepare the way for the Messiah, this shows the hearts of man in society, or the hearts of many in society. They did not see Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe the ones that get them ready, they were still not ready. Jesus was in their midst, but they were not ready for him. How tragic when God sends a Savior, a solution for sin, and man is so busy in his sin that he keeps going in his sin and rejects the offer to be plucked from his sin. It reminds me of the illustration. There once was a man who lived in a two-story house, and the house was near a river, and unfortunately the river began to flood. As the river rose, warnings were given via radio, TV, even cell phone alerts. 
large jeeps drove through the area to evacuate people. As a jeep drove by the man's house, he was told, You are in danger. Your life is at stake. You must evacuate. Get in the jeep. Let us try to help you evacuate. No, replied the man from his doorstep. I have faith. I'll be okay. The flood won't get me. God will take care of me. Well, the water continued to rise. Soon the man was on the second floor. A boat was going through the area and arrived at the man's house. Rescuers made every effort to convince the man to take action so that his life would be saved. You are in danger. Your life is at stake. You will drown in the flood. No worries, says the man. I have faith. Everything is okay. Even though the flood is rising, I will be fine. God will take care of me. Well, the flood continued to rise. The man went to the roof to avoid the rising water. A helicopter pilot sees him on top of the roof and hovers over above the man. Using a megaphone, the pilot tries to convince the man to grab the rope ladder, which was dangling above his head. You are in danger. The flood is rising. You will drown if you do not grab the rope ladder. Let us help you. No worries, says the man. I will be fine. Yes, the flood is higher, but I have faith. God will take care of me. Well, the flood rises and the man drowns. At the pearly gates, the man says of God, says to God, I had faith, you let me die. To which God replies, I sent you a jeep, a boat, and a helicopter. What more could I have done for you? How many have rejected God's hand extended to save and rescue us, to pluck us from the sin, and we didn't take it. And in Mark 6, God sent a Savior, and the people are not ready. They're thinking, hmm, maybe this is Elijah, the one to prepare us. They're thinking, we still have time. We can still put it off. How tragic when someone dies without knowing the Lord. They thought, I still have time. I'll get to that later. I have other things to focus on now. And you look back when they die and see moments and opportunities when God tried to reach them. God was faithful. Well, not only are people wrong in their thinking that Jesus could be John back from the dead or Elijah, Others are wondering if Jesus is the prophet, not a prophet, but the prophet with a capital P. Moses recorded this word from the Lord in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord thy God will raise up, up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, and to him ye shall hearken. It was a promise that they held on to, that God would send someone to them as a nation. And some were thinking, this could be him. Well, if it is him, are they listening? Some 2,000 years they have waited as a nation, and if this is it, how are they doing? How are they responding? Not so well. Tragically, they are continuing in their sin, setting themselves up for a total rejection of their Messiah. They are entertaining the possibility that this could be the prophet that they have been told about, but in action, they're doing nothing in response. Just an interesting headline to discuss, but then moving on with life. It sort of reminds me of the current times. People look at the state of the world, events and trends, and talk about Jesus coming back. But does it change the way that we live day to day? We've been told for two centuries to await his return. And it's interesting and intriguing to consider the, the days in which we live. But do we then respond and live right, repent and turn to him? That's what this generation in Mark 6 was dealing with. And it's a familiar, tragic story in each generation. But this is really getting to Herod, and there's reason for this. Mark 6, verses 16 through 18. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. 
because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod comes from a pretty messed up family. This Herod is Herod Antipas. His dad was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who was the Herod at the time of the birth of Jesus, the one that wise men asked where the Messiah was to be born, the one that had all the babies two years old and under to be killed, fearful that someone was going to try and kill him and take the throne. Herod the Great was pretty paranoid. He had multiple wives over the years, killed some of them and their kids, worried that they might try to take his throne. Herod the Great married his first wife, Doris, and they had a son, and he killed them both. Then he married a woman named Miriam. Two sons, paranoid, put them to death. But before he died, one of those sons had a daughter named Herodias. She made it, and she's part of the story here in Mark chapter 6. Well, after Herod the Great killed those first two wives and their kids together, it seems that he pulled it together a bit. So he married another woman who was also named Miriam. They had a son by the name of Herod Philip. And Herod Philip married his niece, Herodias, who was the daughter of the assassinated brother. So he married his half-sister. So she and his wife and, all, and his niece all at the same time. Pretty confusing. Well, this was going on, Herod the Great married another gal. She had a couple of sons. One was Herod Antipas. This is the Herod in our story that is paranoid over John the Baptist coming back to haunt him. Now, here's where the drama gets even more dramatic. Herod Antipas went to Rome and visited his half-brother Herod Philip. While in Rome visiting his brother, Herod Antipas falls in love with Herodias, his sister-in-law, who is also his niece. Herod Antipas talks Herodias into leaving his brother, her husband, marry him, and come back to Galilee and reign with him. And she does. Such drama. This is worse than a modern-day soap opera or celebrity news on TMZ. So, with all that in mind, we read again, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her, because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John said something. He didn't just stay silent. I'm sure Herod was surrounded with plenty of yes-men. Those who would just let him do what he wanted, just smile and nod, turn a blind eye because they wanted to maintain his favor. But John feared the Lord and his word and his commands. He maintained perspective on the ways of the Lord. What God said was right and wrong, and John did not waver. It can be confusing for some in wanting to be loving as Christians not to say anything, even when it is clear that something is sin. But remaining silent is not loving even if someone does not want to hear. Aaron and I were talking recently about a phrase that we hear more and more often when people say, well, that's your truth, or I'm just speaking my truth. It's an existential spin on the fact that we can all have our own truth. So it's getting harder and harder to speak up when someone is doing something the Bible says is wrong because it's quickly shot down as being narrow-minded, out of touch with reality, old-fashioned, or even called hate speech, when it, in reality we're just saying, this is what the Bible says. This is what God says about that. Well, in a world that denies the existence of God, or at least his authority over your life or my life or our choices, etc., telling someone this is what God says comes across more and more as this is what someone you do not know or recognize or, or never met says about that. There's no fear of God. So no weight, unfortunately, to what God says. Recently, a State of Theology survey was released by Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Research. They surveyed evangelical Christians in the U.S., and the results were somewhat surprising, but pretty telling. 
Overall, adults in the U.S. are moving away from an orthodox understanding of God and his word year after year. The survey found that more than half of the country, about one in two, 53%, now believes scripture is not literally true, up from 41% when the biannual survey began in 2014. There were a few other big trends the survey found out about it, the tide of belief of those who say they are evangelical believers. First, many are moving toward believing Jesus isn't the only way to God. More than half, 56%, one out of two, affirm that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That's up 42% in 2020, just a couple years ago. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Second, the survey found that many now think Jesus was created by God. A surprising 73% of evangelicals, that's three out of four, agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. This is a form of Arianism, a popular heresy that arose in the early 4th century. This, out of the Council of Nicaea, came the Nicene Creed, which states in part that Jesus was not made but eternally begotten and one in being with the Father, as found in passages including John 3.16. Third, many evangelicals are beginning to think that Jesus is not God. About 43%, that's two out of every five, affirm that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. But in passages like John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And his audience then knew what he meant, because for saying it, Jesus gets accused of blasphemy and threatened with stoning by religious leaders for claiming to be God. Fourthly, a majority in the survey seemed to believe that humans aren't sinful by nature. Some 57%, one out of every two, agreed to the statement that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. This amounts to that humans might be capable of committing individual sins, but we do not have sinful natures. The survey analysis stated, This response indicates that many American evangelicals believe humans are born essentially good, which leans toward a heresy known as Pelagianism. This denies the doctrine of an original sin, which is based on a number of biblical passages, such as Romans 5.12, which teach about original sin. Even David acknowledged in the Old Testament that humans were born in sin, saying, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 51 verse 5. These statistics are scary. Tragic, really. These are evangelical believers. These aren't doctrinal positions on debatable issues or of Christian practice or service. These are core to the beliefs of who God is, who Jesus is, and who man is, and what the scripture says about it all. And tragically, more and more are going the way of misbelief. It's eerily reminiscent of what Paul warned Timothy in his final exhortations in his final t- epistle. For the time will come, he said, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. You endure afflictions. You do the work of an evangelist. You fulfill your ministry. When John saw that Herod, what Herod was doing, he spoke up. He said, hey, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He just stated what God had said in his word, and it struck a nerve. We read in Mark 6, verses 19 and 20, Therefore Herodias, the wife, held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. 
So under pressure from his wife, Herod Antipas puts John in prison. It's interesting. Herod seems to know that John is right. He doesn't repent of his actions. He respects and knows that John is right, but his wife wants John dead. And now Herod is torn, trying to play both sides, wanting to keep John around because he knows that John is just and holy, but also to keep his wife content, at least putting John away in prison. I do want to point out here, while John was bold in confronting Herod on his sin, there is still some communication between them. The door is still open to minister to Herod. It says there that though Herod didn't change things, he was still open to hearing John, in fact, was glad to hear him. So John took advantage of that opportunity. It can be tough navigating with people and their sin. Of course, we need to make sure that we do not get swept up into people's sin, regardless of the situation. But Paul seems to indicate that there is a difference when dealing with a non-believer in sin and a believer in sin. As he wrote to the Corinthian church in chapter 5 of his first epistle, he writes, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly do not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to get out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. If the one who does not profess to be a believer still allows you to speak into their life, well, there is still ministry there. And if the Spirit leads, it's an open door. And that's what John continued to have with Herod, at least for a while. Though Herod and his wife did put John away and only sought him out or opened the door for contact on his terms, it's interesting how when conviction over sin comes, we try to silence the voice of reason. We ignore it, or we push it away, or cut contact with it, or push it into a corner, while God is trying to call us out, giving room to repent and change. I wonder how this story, how the gospel, how history even would have changed if Herod Herod had repented. What blessing would have come upon his home, his kingdom, if he'd feared the Lord? But Herod is a coward, loving his sin over God. And that's where the issue usually lies, when someone loves their sin more than they love God, enjoying their sin more than unbroken fellowship with God, Loving friendship with the world more than friendship with God. Loving the flesh more than the spirit. And it doesn't have to be this way. As scripture says, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects just as a father, the son in whom he delights. And that's when the story gets really tragic. As Herod misses these off ramps, these exits that God is bringing. When you're on a regular freeway, say downtown, you have off ramps every mile or so. Sometimes even more often. You can get off basically whenever you want or need. But out in the middle of nowhere or on a turnpike or a toll road, those off-ramps can be few and far between. Heading back from Paris one night, way after midnight, the navigator fell asleep and I was driving. By the time we realized we'd missed the exit, there was no quick turnaround. It took forever, it seemed, to get off to find the next off-ramp. And it was so much backtracking just to get back to where we need to be. Well, Herod ignores the off-ramps and keeps going. Such a mistake. Sure, repenting would have cost him, would have required change of action, would have made some people like Herodias really unhappy. And obedience to God will make waves, especially among those who are engaged with us in sin or who themselves want us to keep sinning because it makes them feel better about their own sin. 
but missing the off-ramp Scott Gibbs is a big mistake. As a result of Herod refusing to repent, we see the situation get worse and more people drawn in and defiled by the sin. Remember, Herodias is a woman scorned. She wants John the Baptist dead because he told Herod point blank that they were in sin, that God could not bless their marriage. And Herodias can't let it go. We see things get worse and worse because this couple won't repent. In Mark 6, verses 21 through 26, it says, Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorrowful. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Look at this tailspin. Herod and Herodias just won't agree that God is right, and they keep going. So they are at the celebration, the nobles, the high officers, the chief men, they get drawn in. The stepdaughter, how wrong is this? This sensual dancing at her stepdad's party. Then this rushed promise and vow. The conniving behind the scenes, a manipulative woman trying to get her way, and then pride, not wanting to lose face. Herod agrees to it. How tragic to be caught in this situation. Not enough of a backbone to put his foot down and say, enough is enough. He's been backed into a corner, should have repented and taken the off-ramp sooner, but now he finds himself here, and what to do? What to do? James made a keen observation in James 1, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. This is where Herod finds himself. The sin has conceived and has grown and grown, not uprooted sooner like it could have. And now sin upon sin, not just disobedience in this marriage, which was not sanctioned by God, but now pride, sensuality, cowardice, lying, and murder, sin upon sin. And what's crazy is he had one more off-ramp here, it seems. It says in verse 26, And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. How tragic. God is so faithful to give us off-ramps when sin tempts us. And we've quoted many times on this podcast, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as, as is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Herod could have borne it right here and now. Instead of consenting, he could have fled the room, gone straight to the prison himself, found John the Baptist in the dark, dingy cell, and said, I repent. What must I do to be saved? And the love and grace and forgiveness and mercy of God would have flooded that prison and set this man who was bound in a prison of tangled sin set him free. Interesting that John was in prison, but he is the freest one in the story. And Herod, who is free to reign, free to rule, free to make decisions, free to call the shots, free to determine the fate of everyone else, he is a prisoner of sin. 
Perhaps it's even Herod that Jesus had in mind when he said in John 8, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And shortly after, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. We all know what it means to be tangled in sin, unable to get out of the mess that we've made, an avalanche of sinful desires, sinful thoughts, sinful choices, sinful actions, sinful ways, sinful circumstances. But Jesus, he gives us opportunities to repent and to be saved, even in those moments, to be set free. And there is no sin too great, no prison too tight, because Jesus is the chain breaker. But Herod is exceedingly sorry in verse 36. Now, sorry is not the same as repentant. He feels bad that his sin has led him here. He feels bad that he has done something wrong to get here. But feeling bad is not enough. It's what he does next that is key. Will he repent and be saved? The amazing thing is that Herod does not need to figure out how to unravel the knots that he has made. He can give it to Jesus, and Jesus will figure out what to do next. Herod just needs to repent and give it to Jesus. My wife some mornings as we're getting ready for work will ask for my help. She might have a necklace or a chain, some piece of jewelry jewelry that she wants to wear that day chosen to go perfectly with the outfit, but somehow it has gotten tangled since the last time she wore it. Maybe it was while hanging it up, or maybe got twisted when removed, or maybe the mischievous cats have been playing with it and now it's a mess of knots, but she asked for my help, and I kind of like the challenge. I get a pin and I begin getting to work. I become Houdini for a few minutes as I untangle the web of gold or silver, working out the knots that my wife has been struggling to get undone. Well, she gets up, gives up and hands it off to me, and I work at it, and eventually, ta-da, the knots have been untangled. And she can put it on and go off to work. I've gotten pretty good at it, if I'm honest, and my wife has figured that out, and she likes to hand them off to me. How much more can Jesus figure out what to do with the mess that we've made? So many, when we face with the chance to repent, will not repent, because we are overwhelmed, or people are overwhelmed with where they have gotten themselves and can't see a way out of their circumstances, don't see a way to undo it. And they're lied to by Satan. They figure that all they can do is make the next sinful choice, a self-fulfilling prophecy, thinking sin is the only choice that they have next. But that is a lie from Satan because Jesus has a way out. What glorious end this story could have had if Herod had just had faith to turn it all over to Jesus saving faith that surrendered and gave the brokenness, the sin, all of it to Jesus and said, Jesus, here, take it, and would let Jesus make beauty for ashes. But Herod did not, as many of us refuse to do, even as believers at times. And what a tragic end to this section, verses 26 through 29. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head be brought. And he went and beheaded John the Baptist in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse, and they laid it in a tomb. What a heavy, sad end to John the Baptist's story. They rushed this execution. Immediately he sent, before he had time to change his mind, just did it to get it over with. Can you imagine seeing this scene? How, how grotesque, how gross, this man's head on a platter. Imagine the, the blood dripping down on the floor as they walked in and brought it back out, this trail of blood. 
just how defiled and wicked it must have felt. This whole situation, hard to imagine it really, but it's there in scripture. It happened. It happened indeed. As we finish here, there are a few tragic things to ponder. It's tragic when bad things happen to good, faithful servants of God. Like John here, history is full of them. Wonderful servants of the Most High God who face violence, martyrdom, mistreated, misunderstood, persecuted, imprisoned, and not even always for the faith. Loving, faithful Christians are victims of violent crimes. They get diseases and die painful deaths. They are victims of unexpected and freak accidents. Bad things do happen to good people. We are not always divinely, supernaturally immune from the hardships of this world. Tragedy happens even to the faithful. Here was John, the forerunner of Jesus, faithful from the womb of fulfillment of prophecy, God's man for the job, beheaded, a violent, horrible death for speaking up for the gospel. When tragedy hits even God's own, the temptation is to doubt the goodness and faithfulness of God, but it is not so. Our circumstances never dictate the character of God, and Job, who knew personal tragedy oh so well, said it best when he declared in the midst of his own hardship, Though God slay me, yet I will trust him. But what is more tragic than bad things happening in this fallen world that might make us question where is God in the midst of it all? It's the tragedy of death without Jesus. When a sinner dies apart from God's grace, to face an eternal separation from him, still in their sin, unholy people unable to stand in the presence of a holy, righteous God without the righteousness of Jesus upon them. And the reason why it is so tragic is that it need not be this way, because God has made a way. Loving the world, sending his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And even when a righteous one dies, one righteous by faith, not by works, we see this line from the Psalms oh so true. Psalm 116 verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. John's death in Mark 6, tragic indeed, but a welcomed homecoming as he stepped into God's presence, hearing the affirmation, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. How tragic that all have the opportunity to hear that greeting, but many will hear instead, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, because they were not willing to repent. Loving sin more than the one who had given grace and mercy and forgiveness and payment for sin, that is more tragic than any of the tragedies that mark the human existence this side of heaven. So Lord, give us sober hearts about the gospel, about the lost, about sin. We give glory and honor to you, Lord, the pure and holy and righteous one. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect sacrifice, that in your death we have life, if we will just believe. Lord, may the work of your gospel be complete and powerful and thorough in our lives and the lives we seek to reach. And may we not be ashamed of the gospel, knowing that it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So fill us, Lord, to share. Send us to proclaim and stand for your truth. Give us your heart as we share what you did. And protect us, Lord, in this God-rejecting world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <music>